Hello everybody, good evening, good day. Welcome to episode 62 of the Ask Abhijit show. Great to see you all. Let me see who all is here. I can see Aman, I can see Shush, Sushma, Anurag, Kingster, Soumya, Monish, Krishna, Prasiddhi, Khusro, Vishal, Arijit, Shikhar Saraf, Super Duper, Swapnil, Chiching, Mithor, Dheeraj, Parama Banerjee, Yash Tavle, Kostub, Preeti, Kite House, Probal, Asmenor, Almighty Soul, Alan Jason Wu, Tanmay, Karanveer, Neeraj, Akash Rathor, Sujit Sain, School Teacher, Rajesh, Samarth, Animish, Nirmala, Siddesh, Aishwarya, Free from Stammering, Adarsh, Sampriti Goswami, Tanmay, Harshit 2.0, Lil Krishna, Somyaja, Keshav, Lovdeep Singh and so many more. Good evening, good day. So nice to see you all. So today, as you know, today we are doing a live chat session. I will be taking your questions from the live chat. So, and I will also take a few questions from comments because I've got so many questions in the comments. So I've just picked a few today, about five, five or so, and I will answer a few of those today. But 99% it's going to be from the live chat. So... Let's have your questions, gentlemen, ladies, friends. What's your what are the questions? Let me take a look. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see. Parama Banerjee says, if Nalanda University or any ancient university had female or other foreign students, why is there no evidence of them? I told this to a history teacher and is simply declined. See, today, if you go to the uh, place where you have Nalanda University, it's all destroyed. It is just ruins. You go to Takshashila in Pakistan, present-day Pakistan, temporarily, it is all destroyed. Go to Vikramshila, destroyed. Everything is destroyed. Everything is mostly flattened. Sharda Peet is in ruins. Everything in ruins. So, is in ruins. So, where will we find the evidence, physical evidence of female students there? How do we find it? Right. The thing is this, we do, and, and foreign students also, right? I mean, we do have uh, accounts by Fahian, by Xuanzang, by a couple of Skitian uh, gentlemen who had come to India, etc. That they had uh, visited India, studied in these universities. We have some accounts. So whatever accounts have survived are, are currently outside India because everything in India was destroyed. And that's why there is so little evidence of, of the kind of system we had in the in these universities we have so little evidence because everything was burned down we had libraries that burned for months so all the written records of all the admissions of the students which which who were the students what were the syllabus what kind of uh, uh, textbooks they were taught and all the other records in the libraries everything was destroyed which is why we have very very scanty evidence of anything today so that's why the West and the Marxists can interpret this in any way they want. They, they can say, it's all myths. You're all lying. You're making it up. You're inventing history. There is no such history. That's what they can claim. So your history teacher is declining it. Why do you care? Ignore. Ignore the history teacher. You See, 99.9% .9 of history teachers in this country are mentally colonized. They are teaching you the same history they taught, they, they learned when they were students. They believe it. They believe it. They see no reason to distrust or, or not to believe this history they have been taught and the, what they are teaching. Some of the intelligent ones know that this is all false. If you go and talk to them privately, they will tell you the truth. But those are few and far between. So do not waste your time <laughs> arguing with history teachers and all that. 
and if you want evidence of female uh, enrollment in uh, indian india's indigenous education system i would suggest that you read the beautiful tree by dharampal dharampal was a writer who compiled all the data that the british had created the british had compiled lots of data about india's indigenous system education system in the 19th century so dharampal i think went to london and accessed all this data and he wrote these books this book the beautiful tree which contains data and statistics of the uh, demographics of the students who used to study in india's indigenous education system this is not the great universities because that there was a long time ago but whatever survived of india's indigenous education system until the 19th century he has given ample evidence of the demographics of the students in that so it clearly shows girls and boys go equally got education and all the so called castes upper caste lower caste whatever there is everybody or students of all these communities were studying in the education system so that's what i can point you towards if you want statistics and data but ap- apart from that we have no evidence left apart from the little bit of uh, foreign testimony that still survives right but the evidence that we have from dharampal's work it clearly tells you that there was no discrimination of any kind whether gender or class or caste or any such thing in the indian education system so i w- i think these books uh, dharampal's works are available online uh, the entire book i think pdf or some some such version must be available online you can check it out all right let's pick another question Sukanto says can i learn quantum mechanics on my, my on my own book recommendation for a beginner like me uh see quantum mechanics is uh, very hard to learn unless you have a solid background in advanced mathematics so that is and, and, and not just that you also need a good understanding of of electromagnetism of classical mechanics of 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 all that so you need to have invested several years studying all these things only then can you even begin uh the beginners quantum mechanics so that's what i would say if you want a book recommendation for the very beginner level i it would be a uh, iceberg and resnick that's one book quantum i'm not sure what is the title but it's iceberg and resnick resnick quantum physics or something like that and the other one is the book by griffiths quantum mechanics by griffiths that is the standard beginners textbook so but you will need to understand a lot of uh, physics already and a significant amount of of uh, introductory quantum mechanics mathematics to start this so that's what i can say deepak kumar says is the current indian taxation system good for india and what will be the best taxation for india which contributes to every part of india i don't know if the current taxation system is good for india i mean there are taxes which are not even official right in this country in india there are municipal level taxes which have various names but those are unofficial taxes actually illegal taxes that are levied on all kinds of people and so on and so forth there is gst which is a good thing it has unified the country finally after 70 years and then there is income tax and all that but very few people actually pay the income tax and if you pay income tax you still have to pay additional tax on top of it so i think the current taxation system is quite jumbled it needs to be rationalized but every political party which is in the opposition is going to oppose any attempt to reform anything in india like we have seen with the farm laws 
so they will communalize the issue they will uh, politicize the issue so it's it's hard it's going to take time you know unless uh, things change until uh, unless uh, certain changes are implemented which will again take time i would say the current taxation taxation system is better than what you had in the past in the past during the nehruvian and uh, the congress regime you had almost 90 plus percent income tax you know for certain for certain slabs and so on so taxation was horrible in those days the highest tax tax rate was more than 90% i think the slab there are different slabs right and so on so we are in a much better situation today and even compared to a country like the us which has such a heavy rate of income tax india is better i would say but it can still be improved i mean i would even say that you could do away with income tax altogether because everything is taxed anyway you buy you purchase any good any service there is gst there is already levied on that so everybody is anyway being taxed no matter where you are whether you pay income tax or not if you purchase a sing any any good or any service there is a tax on it you are paying tax no matter what you purchase so i think this income tax and all it's just unnecessary complication for people you can do over with the income tax and have a single gst or something for the whole country that will take care of taxation anyway so i think it can certainly be improved further but there is for the government to decide what is best and uh, whether it is uh, politically feasible or not so these things take time but certainly i think things can be improved significantly even further from where we are today uh pakistan is trying <laughs> trying to balkanize india in twitter should india worry don't worry about twitter twitter is uh, is not the real world twitter is all trends and hashtags and people well people ganging up and uh, various countries trying to influence people's minds and all the best thing is don't pay too much attention to twitter don't spend too much time on twitter or social media uh so the 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 pakistanis can't balkanize india through twitter of course it is it is true that people can be influenced people's uh, world view people's mindset people's attitudes people's opinions and beliefs can certainly be influenced uh, via social media especially people who spend a lot of time on social media so i would recommend that don't take social media too seriously don't take spend too much time on it use it in a constructive way you can certainly use social media to gain knowledge to gain information to get a sense of the pulse of the nation to get a sense of the pulse and the, and the mood of the world at large etc but it should be used judiciously so i don't think pakistan can succeed in balkanizing india in twitter but overall yes there are these uh, like like i spoke about yesterday we have these uh, what's what's called the fourth generation warfare this civil society level warfare etc to influence the opinions the attitudes and all that of of people at large so that is something the uh, the government should certainly be uh, concerned about and i'm sure that they are aware of it and they must be taking certain steps and people complain that india the government of india has done almost nothing to rein in the censorship and all of that on social media especially twitter but i am sure that at least uh, we are aware of what's happening and so once if it crosses a certain red line that certain steps will be taken so let's let's see how that goes but one should not really worry 
too much about the Pakistanis trying to balkanize India. One would one should be worried about other larger forces ganging up together to to influence society and to engineer society in India through the social media. That is a different story. But Pakistan is not as big a threat unless it is acting in tandem with bigger, larger forces, more powerful forces. Okay, let's take more questions. Okay. Komal says, do you believe that extraterrestrial life could be hiding in the interior oceans of our galaxy? In the past, there were incidents like UFOs arising from the ocean. Well, I am not aware of any oceans in the galaxy. We have oceans on our planet, on Earth. Is it possible that extraterrestrial life could be hiding in there? It is possible because we don't know much about the interior of the oceans on Earth. The oceans are a big mystery. We have not explored much of them. Um, much There could be a lot hiding in the oceans that we are not aware of. So technically and uh, hypothetically, it is certainly possible that there are things under the ocean that we are not aware of. Maybe uh, maybe there are ETs hiding in there. It is possible. I, I cannot, um, one cannot rule it out 100%. So it is possible. Yes, I don't believe it's there. I am quite skeptical about this, but it is not impossible. It, it is certainly there in the realm of possibility. Rana says, is there any evidence of ancient India contacting with Kush, which is ancient Sudan? which used to be one of the great civilizations rivaled to pharaonic Egypt. See, there is, I, I have spoken about this in the past, that there is significant evidence of contacts between India and Eastern Africa going back several thousand years. For instance, we have evidence of Zebu cattle, Indian uh, cattle in Egypt going back at least to 2000 BCE. And if you uh, examine the genetic evidence, if you examine the... Uh, the literature, the scientific literature, you find that there were two waves of of uh, of introduce of introduction of Indian cattle into Africa. One which happened about about four thousand years ago, I think, and one happened ten thousand years before today. So it and, and these cattle they don't migrate on their own. These are domestic cattle, which means that humans brought them to Africa. And if there are Indian cattle who were introduced to Africa, it means Indians introduced them to Africa. So there is significant circumstantial evidence of contacts between India and Eastern Africa. Sudan, ancient Sudan, is on the eastern coast of Africa. It's quite, quite close to India, relatively, compared to southern parts of Africa and so on. So it is suddenly uh, very much, very, very firmly in the realm of, of, of feasibility, of possibility. Uh, all we need to do is to do some some research some genetic tests and all that i think uh, if you look at the culture of eastern africa they, you can see uh, very telltale signatures of of indian cultural influence there much of it could be more recent but if you do a large scale genetic testing of the people of eastern africa of the east coast of africa sudan kenya somalia etc you will find that there is going to be at least some evidence of Indian ancestry there. So as of today, we cannot say for sure because nobody has done this research. Nobody has done this scientific uh, research, this genetic testing, any of that. Even in India, we don't even understand the proper genetics of India itself because nobody has done a widespread genetic survey in India. 
you need to sample the popular the the genetic uh, you need to extract genetic samples of at least 10000 indians across the length and the breadth of india and do a complete genetic analysis then you will understand the genetic diversity and complexity and history of india so that needs to be done first and then our scientists can go to east africa and do some testing there then we will be able to establish for sure on a factual basis what are the linkages genetic linkages between india and the eastern regions of africa and how old these linkages and these relationships are so that's something that needs to happen in the future as of today we have circumstantial evidence we have tentative evidence from the kind of culture they have from the cattle from the indian cattle that are found across africa especially eastern africa and so on and so forth so we have evidence but to put it on 100% uh, data based ground that, that then we need uh, to do these these particular these specific kinds of research anish says shouldn't india have a fixed national policy foreign economic educational etc regardless of the polit uh, political party in power basically a deep state that exists in most of the nations you know this is a very good point i mean in india anytime the political uh, dispensation changes then all the policies get reversed and things that were being built over 10 years are suddenly <laughs> destroyed you know like for instance when somebody like ik gujral came to power for 3 months he destroyed india's entire intelligence network in pakistan so that sort of thing cannot be allowed to happen again so we do need to have a fixed national policy foreign policy economic policy educational policy uh, defense policy and all these things this has to be there regardless of who is in power so for that we will have to make changes to our constitution to our entire structure right certain things need to be set in stone and there those things cannot be touched and first of all we need to ensure that we cannot have any political party that is anti national in character today it is very convenient for many political parties to be overtly anti national or to be even soft separatist parties and this is tolerated according to india's constitution and laws so all these things need to change only then will your suggestion be, be actually valid but it's a very good and very important suggestion it needs to happen because a civilization need to, like india needs to have not a 100 year plan but a 1000 year plan you know so that can only be possible if we have this sort of a fixed national policy that certain things are set in stone and certain things cannot be compromised so yes it is a good suggestion but i don't know how feasible it is as of today maybe in the future one could implement that sort of thing so you would need to change the constitution and and enshrine these things in the constitution today what is enshrined in india's constitution secular and socialist that is the non negotiable part of the of the constitution secular and socialist we need to remove that and enshrine the, these things which you have just uh, mentioned that is more important than secularism and socialism the national interest needs to be enshrined in the constitution okay let me take some more questions let me take a question from from a comment just for a change one second let me let me do that so this is a question by vishal i'm big fan etc 
one simple question as a student will your video be of any use during upsc preparation or will it waste time or deviate path for exam perspective as we have to study our textbooks it's an, it's a very important question and i can't super chat as we are indian students okay first question are these videos is the knowledge that i'm giving is the whatever i'm telling you is it useful from an exam preparation perspective from upsc perspective no it's not if you if you write the things i am telling you in your exams they're going to fail you because from an exam perspective you have to write the mentally colonized nonsense which they are which they teach you in the textbooks if you write what i am telling you the real history of india then you will be failed or you will get very less marks so do not use these sessions and whatever i'm telling you as as is as your foundation for studying for exams if you want to do well in the indian education system you have to memorize whatever is written in the indian textbooks even if even though it may be wrong so that is a very important thing do not use these sessions do not use the my videos for exam preparation no it is only for your personal knowledge long term knowledge it is not for passing exams it it is going to be problematic if you use this in your exams all right so please understand that secondly super chats see in in this channel i have turned off super chats i have said this in the past but i think lots of new people have uh, subscribed and they may not be aware of it so there are no super chats on this channel initially i had start i had turned on the super chats because i was just testing things out then i realized that super chats are were creating a divide between my audience between those who could pay for super chats and those who could not pay and my, the majority of my audience is students young young kids you know 20 22 23 years old or even younger and when you are a student you can't afford to pay any money and that's why i don't want this artificial divide between my students i between my 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 audience on this channel everybody is treated equally so there are no super chats i will not take money for answering questions i think that is obscene so on this channel at least there will never be super chats for asking for answering questions okay i hope that answers your question right let's take some other question <laughs> okay i am 28 i feel old no, that's okay age is just a number it doesn't matter what matters is how you feel do you feel old or it's just is, is does the number make you feel old that is not important at all sir it's not important abhyanshu says veer das veer das has written a two india poem which discusses about two india one good other bad some people are appreciating it others are getting offended i can't deny whatever veer said what did veer say what did the guy say that india is a people is is a nation where men are are rapists right do you agree with that nonsense it is not indian culture to do that indian culture treats women with the greatest of respect with the utmost respect there are certain sections of society who have a, who have a different approach towards women well there is not indian culture by the way and this person veerdas if he has a problem with the culture of the country why doesn't he why doesn't he come to india and and express himself and try to do some try try to change something in some way why does he have to go to a foreign country and wash india's uh, f- f- dirty linen in public over there what did he gain from that and have you seen the kind of movie posters he has appeared in do those movie posters look very respectful towards women have you seen his movie posters i will not even want to put these movie posters over here on the display because they are so offensive towards women and the same guy is talking about respecting women he is a hypocrite 
That's all I have to say about him. All right. Om says there was out of India migration into Europe. Then why Europeans don't have haplogroup H, which was known as the Dravidian gene? I am not aware of this haplogroup H, but I will look it up and maybe I will answer later. But there is no such thing as the Dravidian gene, Aryan gene. There is no Aryan Dravidian. This is something I've said so many times. Maybe you've not seen it before. But there is no such thing as Aryan or Dravidian. The geneticists are trying to create these artificial divides. Ancestral North Indian, ancestral, ancestral South Indian, so on and so forth. Utter nonsense. Look, look up my my earlier videos. Okay, why, why don't I show you how to do some research? Let's take a look at haplogroup H. Since you are since you are mentioning haplogroup H, let's let's take a look at it. Let's go to Google. Haplogroup H. What is it? Let's take a look. There is Wikipedia. Then there is Nature. Uh, frontiers in old haplogroup. Let's let's. Uh, Let's take a look at Wikipedia. It's not the best source, but I'm just taking a look at this to understand very quickly what it is. So haplogroup H, its, its place of origin is South Asia, which is the Indian subcontinent. Its ancestor is HIJK. It is about 48,000 years old. The ancestor is HIJK, haplogroup HIJK. Haplogroup HIJK is also an Indian haplogroup. Its ancestor is GHIJK whose ancestor is haplogroup F, which is the ancestral haplogroup of more than 90% of all non-African men. Right? So did you see how I went back in the lineages? Haplogroup F, its descendant is haplogroup uh, GHIJK. The descendant of haplogroup GHIJK is haplogroup HIJK. The haplogroup HIJK's descendant is haplogroup H, which you are referring to. So it is just another Indian haplogroup. Why does it make it the Dravidian haplogroup? Why, why is that? So there you have it. It's not anything like the Dravidian haplogroup or the South Indian haplogroup or anything. It is something that originated in the Indian subcontinent 48,500 years ago. That is a whole lot of time ago. So that would be ancestral to lots of people. Now, where is it found mostly? It's found mostly, it seems, in southern India and in the Indian subcontinent. Maharashtra, Gujarat, Bengal, it looks like. Bengal, eastern India. And not much abroad. But of course, you can see that there is an Anatolian component. No, it's a eastern European component. There's a southern Spain component to it. Right? You can see that. So it's not only India. It is there in Europe also. So, you know, I'm just doing a very brief cursory analysis of it just for just to show you. But it's clearly not the case that it's a Dravidian thing. Otherwise, it would not be found in Europe and so on. So I hope that answers your question in very, very brief. That it is not the Dravidian gene or any such thing. It's an ancient lineage which emerged in India about almost 50,000 years ago. I, I will look at it in more detail, not from Wikipedia, but from proper sources. And I, maybe in the, in the future, I will talk about that. But uh, anyway, good question. Keshav says, where does the R1B gene belong to? It's not a gene, it's a lineage. Lineage means vansh. You know vansh? It's a patrilineal lineage. It is the descendant of the R1 lineage. R1 has two major descendants, R1A and R1B. And R1 
and R, these lineages they originated in India, maybe 20, 30,000 years before today or more. So it originates in India, R1B. But R1B is now mainly found in Western Europe, but it originates in India. So what does it tell you? And it is the haplogroup, the lineage that is found among the ancient invaders of Europe, the, Yam, the so-called Yamnaya invaders of Europe, who invaded Europe about 5,000 years before today. It was a cataclysmic invasion. They rampaged across the entire continent in a very brief period of time. It was a mega invasion, just a few thousand men on horses. And they changed the entire uh, demographics of Europe. They essentially wiped out all European men and then they uh, had children with the surviving in European women, and those are the those and their descendants are the Europeans of today. So that is R1B, but its ancestry, the ancestry of the R1B lineage, is in India. Okay, let's. Okay, I saw some interesting questions. They disappeared. Okay, Kanhai says. Tell us about the Kulaks and their genocide in Russia. So when you had the communist revolution, uh, what was it, 1917-18, right? 1917-18. Uh, that's when uh, the communist party took over Russia. They, they evicted, they, they, uh, it, was a, it was a revolution. The Romanov dynasty was, was uh, uninstalled from power. The Romanov family was all shot the Tsars of Russia, and the communists became the rulers of the USSR. And then they started collectivizing the economy. So everybody, so private property was, uh, was abolished. Everybody was forced into communal living. All property was communalized. It was all, it, it was all, uh, it was all captured, confiscated by the state and so on. So the Kulaks, so they were the the, Rus the Russian uh, countryside was full of peasant farmers. You had poor farmers, farmers. You had middle income farmers, and then you had reasonably prosperous farmers. So what the uh, USSR did, what I think it was Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, he gave the order to confiscate all the grain of all the farmers without giving them anything in return, you know, no money in return. That's, I think, how it happened. That's, how I, th I think, how it went. So all the grain was confiscated. Now, certain sections of the farmers, they tried to resist this uh, process. And they were uh, labeled as kulaks. Kulaks means, I, I'm not sure what it means in Russian, I forgot. Uh, we can always look it up. But it was the more prosperous farmers. And they were... Uh, dubbed enemies of the state. So Kulaks were, I think, dubbed as bloodsuckers and vampires and things like that, you know. Because in, in communism, in Marxism, if you are successful, then you are looked upon as the enemy. Marxism loves mediocrity. Okay. So uh, success is oppression. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the attitude the Marxists have. And this was a Marxist uh, society. They tried to create a Marxist utopia. So they all demonized these kulaks, the people who had, uh, through their hard work, made some progress and become reasonably, moderately prosperous. 
so they were dubbed as vampires and blood suckers that they became prosperous at the expense of the poor people at the expense of the proletariat and then they were all targeted they were many of them were killed many of them were sent to labor camps in siberia and uh, it was terrible so this is in short the genocide and the oppression of the kulaks success is oppression that is the mentality that these people have today in india you will see that business people are regarded i mean in india during the nehruvian times and etc and, and and even after that business people were demonized rich people were demonized that you must have become rich at the expense of the poor even today industrialists who succeed are demonized ambani adani must be evil right instead of looking at at them as wealth creators as employment creators they are regard they they are portrayed by certain political parties as oppressors so there is the same mentality they don't want people to succeed if you get rich it means you must have done something wrong that is the mentality that still permeates indian society today because india was socialist for such a long period of time and socialism just socialism is just soft marxism that's what it is so that is a a little bit of a diversion but that in, sh- in short is the uh, story of the kulaks they were oppressed very badly you could call it a genocide if you wish but yeah that's essentially what happened in russia during the time of vladimir lenin and maybe even later i'm not sure but certainly during lenin's time it happened anish says do you ex- uh, do you anticipate india gradually dissolving the reservation system in the upcoming future will meritocracy ever be practiced in indian education and administration system it's not going to happen anytime soon because the moment you do that let's say <laughs> i mean we have just gone through the farm laws episode yes mr modi tried to do something that was good for the farmers especially the poor farmers and see what happened the rich farmers who don't pay any taxes who are benefiting from all these sops and all that they came out in opposition to this farm laws because it would have uplifted the poor farmers and the political parties they communalized communalized the issue they they turned it into an anti sikh kind of issue and that well that was very problematic for india so that's why i think it was uh, i i am not trying to say that this is why uh, mr modi uh, repealed the farm laws but clearly there was a national security uh, angle to this and the millions of poor farmers who were benefiting from the farm laws <laughs> did they come out in support of mr modi no they kept quiet so that's how it works now today we have these reservations in education reservations in the government uh, services government jobs and all that now let's say the prime minister of india decides to abolish this imagine how it will be painted by the opposition political parties this is anti dalits this is anti low caste this is anti backward caste this is anti obc this is anti scst blah 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 that's how it will be immediately portrayed and what happens next the prime minister loses the election <laughs> so it simply will not happen today it simply can't happen today it may not even be possible in the next 10 years maybe not even in the next 20 years who knows hopefully in the next 20 years but india does need meritocracy if i am not against reservations but reservations should be given based on financial status not on 
what what, what is the so called caste that you belong to there are lots of people in the scst communities which are, who are very prosperous who are very rich go to mizoram they come under sc or or st or something they all have two three cars mizoram is one of the highest uh, levels of income and uh, prosperity in the country and yet they are benefiting from all the reservations <laughs> so this is the kind of uh, absurd situation that you see in india so reservations are certainly legitimate you should certainly support the the sections of society that need support but the reservation should be given on the basis of your financial status people who are genuinely poor they should be given reservation they should be given free education and so on and so forth that sort of reservations so if your financial status is below a certain level you should be given free education free free meals for your children and so on that is perfectly perfectly legitimate but reservations based on caste in education and administration system etc that that unfortunately is an idea that is way past its uh, its its date you know but unfortunately this political system in india is such that it is not going to be it is essentially political suicide to reverse this today so it's going to go on for some time at least a decade minimum unfortunately so sad isn't it but that's how it is okay let me take some more questions Atharva says the the system of governance we need in India is dharmic. What if we adopt the system implemented by Iran by replacing our dharma wherever it is Islam there? Well, you try to do that, the whole world will come up against against you in arms. The New York Times will say India has gone fascist. India has gone fascist, and India is anti-minority, and it is it is this phobic and that phobic. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, every single uh, newspaper in the so-called international community will do that all you will have all these rana ayubs and various uh, indian journalists writing all kinds of things in the media the barkhadats and all the wire liar squint or quint print whatever the hell that is they will start publishing tons of articles saying that india has gone fascist so it won't happen today we it, i mean there's nothing wrong with it if the islamic countries can have islamic governance why can't we in india have our own form of governance but you know the constitution will not allow it the laws will not allow it the governance system will not allow it and even if you try to change the constitution and do this entire thing today the international climate is such that they will all go against you and isolate you and you know there will be problems so the best solution right now is to take it easy and uh, in the future when slash if the time is right such a thing could be done if the right leadership is in place Pratyush says, "What do you think about Jai Chand? Uh, as there are no there's, there's no historical evidence of him betraying Prithviraj Chauhan, and he also called himself protector of the Brahmins. So, uh, whatever uh, I mean, uh, the the term Jai Chand is now today popularly used as a euphemism for a traitor, for somebody who betrays his people and his nation, right? But in and and the the origin, the genesis of this." Uh, perception is that that poem called prithviraj raso by chand bardai in which he said that it was jayachand it was maharaja jayachandra who betrayed prithviraj chauhan to the to the invading afghans 
uh, something like that. I mean, I've not read it in detail, but that, that is essentially what it says. It it lays the blame on Jayachandra. Well, that is not true. That that uh, poem is wrong. I mean, the, it is all fabrications. It also says that Prithviraj went to Kabul and he shot uh, Gori with an arrow and killed him and all that, which is again a lie. So no such thing happened. And there is no evidence whatsoever, factual evidence, that uh, Jayachandra, the, 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 the king Jayachandra, betrayed Prithviraj Chauhan. So no, it is not the case. I am. I have not read in detail about uh, Jayachandra himself, but from all accounts, he seems to be a very good king. He seems to have been a good king, even a great king, perhaps. But it is this perception that has been created about him, and that is a false perception. So that's what I can say about Jayachandra. Right. Let's take some more questions. I recent uh, Somya Brata says I recently heard in a TED talk that there is no archaeological evidence of Alexander's invasion. Is it true? Well, there is no archaeological evidence of Alexander himself. <laughs> Forget about his supposed invasion of India. There is no archaeological evidence that Alexander even existed. Not one piece of archaeological evidence. And Whatever literary evidence we have of Alexander is just three Greek texts. And those two were written after he is supposed to have died. So that is the flimsy evidence that we have in some total that Alexander even existed. And based on those three accounts by Greek writers, which were written after his supposed death, people have written thousands of books about Alexander and turned him into some great, great conqueror. We don't know if he even existed. I mean, why should we believe the Greek writers? Do they believe Indian writers who have recorded entire lineages of Indian kings? No, they say it's all mythology. So according to the same yardstick, there is no evidence, either archaeological or literary, that Alexander the Greek even existed. (laughs) That's the thing. That's a funny thing, isn't it? Anish says, who has more impact or power in decision-making, bureaucrats or elected politicians in India? See, mainly it's the politicians, but the bureaucrats have a different kind of power. They can slow things down, and even if a certain law is passed, the bureaucrats can can interpret it in any way they want. And they can formulate rules which come under the law, which can essentially distort the intent, the purpose, and the meaning of the law. So bureaucrats have a lot of power at the lower levels. Bureaucrats are the people who face the public, right? Anytime you want to go to a government office or interface with the government, you have to go and talk to a bureaucrat, somebody who is in who is in, in a government office. Those are bureaucrats. They have all the power over you. They can make you, make you wait for days, weeks, months. They can, uh, they can essentially do anything they want. And there's no nowhere you can go to complain, you know? So that is the kind of power bureaucrats have. They don't have the high-level power that politicians have, but they have the low-level power to make life miserable for the citizens of the country. I'm not saying all bureaucrats are bad. There are many really exemplary bureaucrats. There are there are not many, but there are some bureaucrats who are really uh, nationalist, patriotic, and who are exemplary people. But overall, we know how they are, right? So that's the kind of power they have at the lower levels. Let me take another question from the comments. So Vivek says, 
do you think we should abolish festivals that cause divisions within indian society like for example dashara where we burn the idol of ravan which the south indians find offensive okay so this is an interesting question let's say we abolish dashara the what is the meaning of dashara dashara is it, it symbolizes and commemorates the victory of good over evil ravan was an evil person ravan was the king of lanka he was a brahmin and he was a very learned person but he he was an evil person he is depicted as eating the flesh of of humans in the ramayan so there is there is no redeeming quality that that ravan had but now certain people are trying to you know give it a casteist me casteist uh, twist that it is the uh, marginalization of the so called dalits that you are celebrating it is the aryan invasion that you are celebrating the white man ravan destroying the black man or uh, the white man ram defeating and killing the black man ravan that sort of nonsense they are trying to do so they are distorting india's traditions they are distorting whatever hinduism and sanatan dharma holds sacred and if we start abolishing our festivals because they are distorting the meaning of the festivals then this will become a template for them to destroy all our traditions they will not stop with dashera they will find a way to destroy and demean everything that you have that you hold sacred right and which south indians find offensive which south indians find dashera offensive does anybody in karnataka find dashera offensive does anybody in uh, andhra or telangana find dashera off- offensive does anybody in sri lanka find dashera offensive it's only some people in certain states who have been brainwashed into hating their own heritage who find it offensive so you have to go to the root of the problem the root of the problem is not the indian festival the root of the problem are the people the few individuals who are spreading this fake this distorted idea of hinduism those are the politicians and the marxist hinduophobic academics that is the root cause of the problem once that is taken care of in a civilized manner according to india's laws right then these problems will go away so what needs to happen is we need to have political reforms that hindu phobia must be made illegal secondly we need to reform the academic system such that hindu phobia is made illegal and academicians professors etc who spread these false distorted uh, interpretations of hinduism need to be sacked that is the only thing i mean by taking care of them they need to be sacked and marginalized like professor bb lal and so many other great historians have been marginalized by them over the decades same thing so that is the kind of action that needs to be taken but if we start abolishing our traditions soon there will be nothing left in india we we may as well all convert to another religion right so i hope that uh, makes sense and clarifies the matter vinay vihang says can india switch to skill based learning from online courses i think if you uh, want to acquire skills it makes sense to learn from online courses there are so many free courses on places like youtube and there are paid courses on um, what are those websites 
uh udemy is one udemy and and so on so forth there are many such uh, such websites skillshare is another one so you get excellent courses from these websites you can learn all your skill based things on youtube itself and there are websites also so if you want to acquire new skills that are not being taught in the indian education system you can certainly do that but the indian education system is not going to sh- to shift that to move to that anytime soon the indian education system is not skill based it doesn't teach you any skills it simply wants to colonize your mind and waste 20 years of your life so i think that in addition to gaining whatever degree you are forced to gain you should spend some time acquiring actual real world skills from online courses hopefully you should not pay money to acquire the skills because much of it is available most of it is available for free on youtube if you just know how to search so it is something that people in india certainly need to do especially young kids and students they should learn all the latest skills from youtube and wherever else possible for free and equip yourself with real skills that you, which will be useful in your long term future So that's a good question. Diversity says if the Aryan invasion theory is proved to be wrong what would be the western world's reaction and how can it be propagated to the world. So it has already been proved to be wrong and you can see the western world's reaction they are trying to ignore it they are trying to insist that their Aryan invasion theory is correct now that the invasion there is no there is no evidence of invasion now they are saying it's a migration. now when the migration is also not proven they will say it was a tourism then they will say it was picnic and so on but they will just keep on going they are now saying that the yamnaya people who rampaged across europe were the aryans who invaded india well the yamnaya destroyed the entire demographics of europe they killed all the european males where is the evidence of any such thing which they did in india if they were so violent brutal and barbaric why did they not commit massacres in india why is there not a single archaeological evidence anywhere in india of a massacre committed by these aryan invaders by the yamnaya why and they have a distinctive kind of burial which is found all, all across europe why is there not a single yamnaya burial found in india a yamnaya grave so it is just entirely lies and fabrications but they are going they are continuing to insist that their theory is correct so that is the reaction we are seeing right now they are trying to use genetic arguments because very few people understand genetics so you put certain labels on lineages you call it ancestral south indian ancestral north indian so it looks like there are two races in india and that it looks like the there was an aryan invasion then you said that there is the iranian ancestry and then there is steppe ancestry these are two labels they have put on lineages what they do the trick they use is that they will only look at a certain time frame only look up to 5000 bce but don't go all the way to 10000 bce because then the steppe lineage also has indian ancestry if you go back a few thousand years before that they don't want to tell you that so they will give it the label of steppe ancestry and they will only look at the last 5000 years if you go back to the last 10000 years instead of only looking at 5000 years then you will find that the steppe ancestry also has indian ancestry and this so called iranian ancestry also has indian ancestry but that that is something they don't want you to know so these are the tricks these people are continuing to use to try and fool the world and try and make it look like there was an aryan invasion of india it has already been proved false by so many different data points
from the perspective of genetics from linguistics from literature from so called mythological records yeah from hydrology from so many perspectives that isn't proven wrong and still it is just still it is the mainstream accepted version they are even commissioning indian indian business journalists to write books about genetics tony joseph is a business journalist but he has written a best seller about what about what is it called ancient indians or something which everybody is regarding as the gold standard in the history of ancient india so it is very easy to fool people that's what's happening how can it be propagated to the world just keep on speaking about it and keep keep on showing that it's been it's been proven to be wrong that's what i can say magnetic field says is the us willing to make an air base in kashmir so that they can invade china or have a war with them no there is no such proposal and india will never agree to an american military base on indian soil unacceptable it's certainly not in kashmir we may perhaps permit them to make some use of facilities such as refueling and all and so on in indian airports and all that but a permanent us base on indian soil is is out of the question so no there is no no such proposal of any kind of 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 this sort revati says please state your views on the continental drift theory and darwin's theory of evolution please answer this well so the continental drift theory is plate tectonics so below the oceans the entire earth's crust is constantly in motion the motion is caused by the uh, reservoir of magma which is below the crust of the earth so you have the crust of the earth which is of maybe 10 20 30 50 perhaps kilometers thick i'm not sure how thick it is it's it's a very thin layer which is called the earth's crust i don't have the exact numbers you can look it up then below that you have what do you have you have the mantle let's you know why, why don't we take a look why don't we just look it up online we i'll do it with you let me share my screen go to google and uh, just search for something and go to images and this will give you the schematic of how it is so the, so the crust of the earth is about 0 to 100 kilometers thick then you have the mantle which is full of magma and all that or maybe it's just heated material let's see let's see another one okay so yeah this is the this is the kind of thing so below the crust of the earth you have the magma layer the mantle which is all molten rock then you have the outer core of the earth then you have the inner core of the earth so the crust of the earth the crust of the earth is always in motion very slow motion very slow motion and the motion is driven by this liquid layer which lies below it which is all molten rock it's very hot it is so hot that the rock melts and the rock is has different temperatures at different places and that's why it keeps flowing inside the earth and this flow of this mantle of the earth it causes the uh, the movement of the crust of the earth and that is called that is what gives rise to plate tectonics and continental drift so what happens is that 
over millions of years, the continents on the surface of the earth, they move around. They move around based on the movements of the magma layer. And this, this is a process that takes millions of years. So it took about a hundred million years or so, give or take a little bit, for the Indian subcontinent to detach from Africa, from Southern Africa, and move all the way north and become a part of Eurasia. That process took around a hundred million years, if not more. It is a very long period of time, right? So that is continental drift. In the past, maybe, I don't know how many millions of years ago, all the continents were all stuck together into a supercontinent called Pangaea. So this is a process that takes hundreds of millions of years, billions of years even. That's what happens. So that is continental drift theory. It's not theory, it's a fact. It's, it's, it's something that actually happened. Now, Darwin's theory of evolution. So people ask me, I get this question all the time, that if India was once part of Africa and then it moved all the way to, to Asia, it, it became part of Asia, does it mean that our culture changed? How can human culture change when, when humans did not exist 2 million years ago? I think uh, around 4 million years ago, the ancestors of humans and the ancestors of chimpanzees were the same. So humans and chimpanzees were the same species 4 million years ago, approximately. 4 to 6 million years ago. And at that time, India was already part of Asia. When India was part of Africa, we had dinosaurs on the earth. We had no humans. So it has nothing to do with human culture. Right? Homo sapiens, anatomically modern humans, have existed for about two and a half lakh years only, maximum. Two and a half lakh years. 250,000 years, maximum. And humans have inhabited the Indian subcontinent, Homo sapiens, our ancestors, they have inhabited the Indian subcontinent for about 60,000, 70,000 years. So 60,000, 70,000 years is a very short period of time compared to 100 million years which it took for, India, for the Indian subcontinent, subcontinent to move from Africa to Asia. So th there is no relationship between continental drift and human evolution. Alright, please, please understand that. And Darwin's theory of, of evolution, well, it is correct. It is the best theory that we have. We know uh, the evolution of the, of the various species. We know that today's birds are actually dinosaurs. Their ancestors were the avian dinosaurs. They survived the Chicxulub impact, Chicxulub impact, which happened about 65, 66 million years before today. At that time, India was in the middle of the Indian Ocean, right? And there was this big uh, volcanic eruption in India also, the Deccan Traps. So India was at the time above the Réunion hotspot in the Indian Ocean. So that is the time of the dinosaur extinction. But certain dinosaurs survived, the avian dinosaurs, and their descendants are all around us. They are the birds. Birds are dinosaurs. So that is Darwin's theory of evolution. We can see it actually in, 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 in practice, in motion. Our ancestors, we had a different homo species before us. And uh, the ancestors of humans and chimpanzees were the same. We had a common ancestor about 4 to 6 million years before today. About 8 million years before today, we had a common ancestor of humans, chimpanzees and gorillas. And so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a lineal evolution. It is not always linear. 
you have lots of branches which go off in different directions but that is the theory of evolution it is the survival of the fittest we keep evolving uh, to adapt to our changing environment climate change is real the climate of earth has always been changing temperatures go up and down sometimes you have ice ages sometimes you have uh, hotter temperatures you have the milkanovich cycles and then you have larger episodes of climate change based on what life forms are, are prevalent and so on and so forth and so, and that's what causes very slow very gradual evolution so that is darwin's theory of evolution you keep on evolving because of natural selection in order to keep up with the changes in the environment so that's what i can say about this right okay let me see something else aniket says how deep mathematics is required in the field of electronics mm, i am not very big on electronics it was not my favorite subject it's a very important subject of course but in electronics you would need fourier transforms fourier series you would need uh, differential equations calculus and things like that so you would need a significant it's not basic mathematics it is moderately advanced you could say but you don't need the kind of mathematics that you need in um, in uh, physics in mainstream physics so that's the kind of mathematics i would say in brief that you would need in electronics let me take one more question from the comments sai says why are tamil people obsessed with the idea that they are, they are dravidians no other southern indian state has this problem is it so that they feel that they are not from india coming from a telugu guy i think this sentiment of dravidianism is found mainly in tamil nadu it's not even found in kerala mainly it's in tamil nadu it's because of the political environment and what is taught right so it is see the politicians have created this victim mentality that the people of south india especially tamils are a magnificently great civilization a separate civilization and they have they are the dravidians and they have been oppressed for 5000 years by aryans and that's why they need to rebel and then they need to rediscover their pride and their heritage now and only these political parties will help them rediscover their pride so it is nothing but a means of gaining votes and staying in power but if you are taught this the the these these this this world view from your very childhood un- until you are an adult if you are repeatedly told the same thing over and over again you grow up believing it and then it's almost impossible to re- remove those ideas from somebody's mind and that's what we have allowed the education system to do to india and that's why so many tamil people have this feeling that they are a separate civilization separate culture they have nothing to do with hinduism they used to be the most dharmic state in the, in the country and today they are the most anti hindu state in the country even though they still have sanskrit names and hindu names rama swami i mean what does karuna nidhi mean is it is it a tamil name or a sanskrit name right what does jayalalita mean it is a sanskrit name these they all have sanskrit names and yet they hate uh for no fault of theirs they hate sanskrit they hate hinduism they hate india so so, so to say so it is nothing but soft separatism it is and the thing is this see i have been to tamil nadu they are the nicest people in the world it's a beautiful land beautiful culture beautiful people really really nice people they are personally all really nice people 
it is not the fault of any individual it is the political system and the academic system that has created this this perception so this can be changed only by by reforming the education system and by making certain political stances especially soft separatist stances anti national stances they, they should be made illegal so it is not the fault of the people who believe all these things it is not their fault they are merely victims they have been taught this since childhood their teachers taught them all, all this all the time the intermedia says the same thing even their parents have taught them taught them this so they will believe it is not their fault you will obviously believe your teachers your parents the media all the authority figures so that is the environment that has been created so that is something that needs to be well in some way uh, reformed okay let us take some more questions mr right cooper says it is said that if people living in the andromeda galaxy were to use highly advanced telescopes to observe our earth they would see our ancient past instead of the present how does this happen see there is something called the speed of light the speed of light is roughly 300000 kilometers per second so in one second a ray of light a photon travels 300000 3 lakh kilometers so in one year a photon will travel a certain distance which is called one light year now the andromeda galaxy is how far away from earth a billion light years bill 1.5 billion something like that let me just take a look andromeda galaxy distance it's 2 and 1/2 million light years away from the earth so that means that for light to reach the andromeda galaxy from the earth it takes 2 and 1/2 million years 25 lakh years so if somebody sitting there in andromeda galaxy were observing earth with a telescope they would see light that left the earth 25 lakh years before today so they would be looking at the past of the earth and similarly when we look at the andromeda galaxy it's visible to the to the naked eye and it's even better visible through the telescopes so if we look at the andromeda galaxy we are seeing light that left the galaxy 2 and 1/2 million years before today because light has a speed it is not the speed is not infinite it takes time for light to travel so because of the speed limit you are seeing something that happened 2 and 1/2 million years before today so that's how it happens it's because light itself has a certain speed it has a speed limit Tejas says, "Where can we learn Sanskrit in complete sense to study Vedic texts? There is a book called Sanskrit Swayam Shikshak. It's in Hindi. It's not in English, but it's the best book I have found. It's called Sanskrit Swayam Shikshak. It's a very cheap book. It's available online. You can purchase it from your favorite online shop. So it's a very good book. Uh, it has thirty-minute lessons. Within thirty minutes, you will be able to start speaking." and making your first words and sentences in sanskrit short words and sentences and within 3 months you'll be reasonably proficient sanskrit swayam shikshak look it up okay let's take some more questions 
Karan says, what is gravity and what is common between a theoretical physicist and a mathematician? Gravity is one of the four uh, fundamental interactions of nature, one of the four forces of nature. There are four forces, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force and gravitation. So gravity is that fourth force. It is what causes objects to drop down when you drop them. You know, So it, it causes attraction between masses. So that is what gravity is in a very brief, uh, in, in uh, that's a very brief description of what gravity is. It's what causes objects to fall towards the center of mass of the larger object. It is why the earth goes around the sun. It is why the sun goes around the center of the galaxy. It's why all these things happen. So that is gravity. Now what is common between a theoretical physicist and a mathematician? What is common is mathematics. Mathematics is the language of physics. So all the physical laws, they are they are written down in mathematical form. So you cannot do physics without knowing mathematics. So that is what is common between theoretical physics, physics and mathematics. But uh, these two fields are quite different. Mathematicians uh, don't do physics and theoretical physicists only learn the mathematics they need to solve the problems they're working on. That, that's how it goes. So there is a practical aspect of these two disciplines. Okay, let's take some more questions. Okay, let us see, let us see, let us see what questions do we have. Abhi says, what's your take on meditation? So should today's youth indulge in spirituality? If so, how can they find authentic material? Uh, well, meditation is good. Meditation is something that calms your mind. It uh, It is difficult. There are different, there are a variety of techniques of med meditation. There is transcendental meditation. There is vipassana. Then there is, uh, and there are some other forms of meditation as well. You should uh, try if you want to do it it's it's certainly something that i would recommend it is something that helps you focus that it helps you calm the mind remove distractions that is the practical aspect of, med of meditation and it also has long term benefits increased concentration increased peace of mind focus and so on and so forth so meditation is good you have to find whatever works best for you certain techniques work best for certain people everybody is different so some techniques won't work for you some will be better and so on. But it is hard. Meditation is not easy. It takes time. It's like a muscle. You have to keep on exercising the muscle uh, before you can make a, a breakthrough. So initially, it's frustrating. The first 10-20 times you do it, it may be really frustrating because you will make no progress. But if you persist, then you will achieve a breakthrough in meditation. So it is something that's good. Should today's youth indulge in spirituality? Well, it is a personal choice. It is certainly something that is good it it uh, it benefits lots of people spirituality so spirit what is spirituality it is essentially the belief in god and all that that's that's uh, so you could either go to your favorite abrahamic religion or you could go under the path of dharma there are lots of different schools of thought under dharma like i've spoken before and uh, how do you find authentic material? That's the hardest thing in the world today. There are so many so-called gurus out there. The, the rule of thumb is this. 
if a person calls himself or herself a guru then they are fake that is how i uh, that is how i approach the world guru is not a title that can be taken lightly there are very there are very few real gurus in the world today and if somebody gives themselves the title of guru it means that there is something fishy with that person that is my personal yardstick i am not saying that the person whom you may be regarding as a guru is true or false that is simply something that i that's how i approach things it has nothing i mean it is not a comment or a judgment on your favorite gurus but how do you find authentic material that's the hardest thing i mean you have to you have to look it's a quest you have to seek and <laughs> i i don't have any ready made answer for that you know essentially you are asking who is the right guru i mean i don't know that i i don't i don't find any real gurus today i don't see any real gurus there are many people who call themselves gurus but i don't know hum how good or not they are i am not somebody who trusts people especially in that sense <laughs> very lightly so spirituality is good maybe you should follow your own path read read as much as you can read the shastras the vedas maybe that will get take you on the path of spirituality because what was written in the past is essentially the best uh, guidance that we have so maybe that would be a starting point but for that you have to find the right translations so or you have to actually learn sanskrit so it is a hard path it is a hard path but it is something that's worthwhile in the long run so that's your answer Anish says, "Should India start building greenfield projects like smart cities, greenfield ports, airports to slowly reduce the burden on the existing cities and proportionately disperse the population? Is it too late? No, it's not too late. I think that uh, such an initiative is being implemented right now, actually, because uh, now the government is is opening up airports in even small cities, and there is the scheme that." Uh, there is a there is a price limit a price cap on flights from certain uh, tier 2 airports to big cities or something i'm not sure what the details are but lots of smaller airports are being opened up so it is going to make air travel more affordable it's going to connect lots of smaller towns and cities to the bigger urban centers of india uh so that is one good thing that's happening india is already building lots of airports and uh indian um, the various airlines in india are purchasing more and more aircraft so it it shows there's a big ex- expansion underway which is a good thing now we certainly need more ports smart cities well smart cities is a good idea the thing is this see today what is happening is that we have electricity everywhere now for the first time in 70 years almost everywhere i think we have electricity all towns villages are electrified secondly we have high speed internet everywhere very cheap reliable high speed internet across the country so because of these two things because you have electricity everywhere reliable electricity and cheap high speed internet everywhere reliable internet also that has ensured that people can work from anywhere in india today and because of the pandemic most people are working from home especially people who are in private organizations and so on so today it has become possible for indians to work from even small towns in the hinterlands of india 
so that is actually a very good development so it is now going to be possible to decongest the metropolitan cities to move people away to smaller towns where the quality of life is better where all the problems of congestion and pollution aren't there so in the long run it's going to be really good for the country so it is not too late for that it is never too late for that so we have these airports that are being built up you have these highways that are being constructed at a very good rate you have more railway lines being uh, put down and you have high speed internet electricity all that so it is good so actually i'm really enthused to see all this india is going in the right direction and if this continues for the next 10 20 years the whole country will be transformed and you will have lots of new urban centers coming up which is good for the country because india has traditionally historically been a river valley civilization and an urban civilization from 5000 6000 years before today onwards so we need to recreate that step by step right now we are doing it slowly and gradually baby steps but slowly it should pick up pace if the right leaders stay in power <laughs> that's what i would say right let's take one more question from the comments okay um three questions the first thing is revolution brings violence and if gandhi's peaceful protest is also a version of violent pacifism then what is right secondly do you support democracy or monarchy or one party system or any other systems and third if china wasn't a nation as it appears now and propagates now for throughout its history then same thing can be said about india as well okay so firstly revolution and violence yes i have said this that revolutions are violent chaotic affairs revolutions are dangerous for a country they can do more harm than good uh, neighboring countries can take advantage of it and grab your territories and so on and so forth so is revolution bad and is and therefore does it mean that gandhi's peaceful protest was a good thing you see a revolution is a bad thing when you are a revolution is required violence is required when you have a foreign power that is occupying your country when you are being ruled by foreigners then it is necessary to evict them through any means necessary including violence when you have foreigners ruling your country peaceful protests are the worst thing to do that's when you need to use all means at your disposal to get rid of the foreigners to get rid of the occupiers right so mr gandhi did the wrong thing today if you want changes in the country and you try to do a revolution that is the wrong thing because india is not ruled by foreigners anymore we have a system which is not very good but we are still an independent nation and therefore we should not fight among ourselves through violent means a revolution is invariably violent then you'll be fighting indians we should never fight indians through violent means but we should fight foreigners through violent means so that's how it goes so what mr gandhi did was not right he tried to use he used he used non violence to fight supposedly to counter the foreign occupiers of india who were killing indians by the millions every year so that is wrong so mr gandhi was wrong secondly do i support democracy or monarchy or one party system or any other system listen it doesn't matter if the cat is black or white as long as it catches mice that's the answer i don't care what system is in place as long as it ensures the long term pr- prosperity 
and security of the country. Now, India historically has had a hybrid system. We have had an emperor at the top, usually, or a king when India was not unified politically. But you would have a king or an emperor or a queen. And then you at the at the lower levels, you would have democracy. The Janapada system, the Mahajanapada system, even during the Harappan times, there is no evidence of any monarch, any emperor, any king, and so on. So India has historically been a democracy at the lower levels. Because that is what ensures that the people are heard and that the people's problems are solved. So democracy is actually something that emerged out of India, not out of Greece. So democracy is something that has to be there, at least at some level. Uh, One party system, any other system, that doesn't really matter. As long as whatever system is in place, as long as it ensures the long-term security and prosperity of the country and the people, and it... it, it, uh, furthers and pursues the national interest, then it doesn't matter which system is there. But at the lower levels, you certainly need democracy. So that's the kind of system India needs to have. At least at the lower level, minimum, there should be democracy. Uh, Third question is, China wasn't a nation, as it appears now. And the same thing can be said about India. Okay. China hasn't been a nation historically. China has been a civilization. Just like India, China is also a civilization. China is about 3,000 years old or if you or three and a half thousand years at most. That's how old Chinese civilization is. So China also has had warring states periods when you have a fragmented number, lots of small kingdoms that are fighting each other. Sometimes you have one emperor over all of China. Then you have these uh, dynastic cycles in which there is a rebellion and the, imp- and the emperor is deposed and then you have a period of chaos, 100-200 years. And then again, you have small kings rising up and so on and so forth. So China is a civilization. It's not a nation. The nation-state system is very new. It's about to three, four hundred years old at, mo- at most. It dates back to the Treaty of Westphalia. It's an, it's a European system. India also has always been a civilization, not a nation. A nation state is a small thing. A civilization state is a bigger thing. So India has historically been a civilization. When it comes to India, we are at least 10,000 years old as a civilization. We have evidence of cultural continuity, of civilizational continuity that goes back at least 10,000 years. In China, it's about three, three and a half thousand years. So that is what can be said about India and China. They are both civilizations. India is the way older civilization. And that is my take on this issue. Okay, let's go back to live comments. What questions do we have? Okay, the oldie says, can we really stop climate change? And is the sixth extinction really happening? We feel being watched when we are alone. Is it an illocutionary background and being <laughs> being alone is death? Okay, let me answer the climate change question. I did not really get the other one. Can we really stop climate change? No, we can't. What we can change, what we can do is stop polluting the environment and stop accelerating climate change. Because it is for certainly true that uh, for the past 100-200 years, We have been burning coal and hydrocarbons. The West has been doing it since the Industrial Revolution. The West has been rampantly burning coal and hydrocarbons. And that is now reached the level where it is actually accelerating climate change and global warming. But climate change has always been a reality ever since the Earth was born. 
the climate has always been changing. So climate change cannot really be stopped. But what we can change is that we can slow down and hopefully stop the human element, the human contribution to climate change. We are emitting all these greenhouse gases. So much carbon is being dumped into the atmosphere and so on. We are polluting the oceans. We are dumping millions of tons of plastic into the ocean. We are dumping so much raw sewage into the oceans and so on and so forth. That is what can be changed. So that is what is in our hands. If all the governments can agree on something and and take action. So India has made commitments certain commitments. Uh, the, our Prime Minister had made, has recently gone to the Climate Change Summit and made certain uh, commitments on behalf of India that we will achieve certain targets by the year 2070 because it takes time. And so similarly, other major countries also need to do that. And that is what we can do. Is the sixth extinction really happening? Yeah. Lots of species are going extinct at a far greater rate than they did in the past. So there is certainly uh, evidence that uh, a mass extinction is currently in the works. It is going on. So this this can be seen from the fact that a hundred years before today, 99% of the animal biomass on the planet was wild animals. But today, 99% of the animal biomass on the planet is domestic animals, cattle. Cattle that have been raised for consumption mainly by Western countries. So that's what's happening. Only 1% of the animal biomass today on the planet is wild animals. So you can imagine how badly the wild animals have been decimated. So yes, there is a, there is a sixth extinction going on right now. And that is all driven by humanity. So yeah, that is the case. So that's what I can answer. I'm not sure what the other questions are, but that's my answer. Thank you. Lipton Barua says, was Hulagu Khan already Buddhist during the sack of Baghdad? Or did he convert to Buddhism after it, just like Ashoka did? So Hulagu Khan was the grandson of the great Chinggis. And which year did he sack Baghdad? Let me take a look. So Hulagu Khan, I think he did it in, uh, which year was the sack of Baghdad? It was in the year 1258. So he sacked Baghdad in 1258. And I think his religion had always been Buddhism. His mother was Sorhatani Beki, who I believe was a Nestorian Christian. And his father was uh, his father was Tolui Khan, one of Genghis Khan's sons. Uh, let me see if Tolui was the son. Yeah, he was the fourth son of Genghis Khan. So, Hulegu Khan was born a Buddhist. Alright. He did not convert to Buddhism after the sack of Baghdad. He was born a Buddhist. His grandfather was a Tengrist. His grandfather, Genghis Khan, followed the old traditional ancestral Mongol uh, spiritual practice, cultural practice or religion if you want to call it of Tengrism which is a polytheistic religion the main god is 
Tengri, the sky father, when you have Umai, the earth mother, and you have a multitude of other gods. There is ancestor worship, there is spirit worship, there is nature worship, and so on and so forth. But afterwards, Chinggis Khan's descendants converted to Buddhism. Or There is no conversion, they adopted Buddhism. And uh, Hulagu was a Buddhist. And that totally dispels the notion that Buddhists are supposed to be non-violent. There is nothing in Buddhism or any Dharmic tradition which says that you have to be completely non-violent no matter what happens. Right? So he was a Buddhist who destroyed Baghdad and put an end to the golden age of Islam. He nearly destroyed the Islamic world. Nearly. Nearly. So that is about Hulagu Khan. Okay, let us see what other questions we have. Om Zuberi says, what are your views on Dahej Pratha? Was it after the British invasion or was it kept by our ancestors? Oops. All right. So Dahej is dowry. See, traditionally, when a lady gets married, her parents give her gifts, etc. to start off her married life as an adult. So that's always been, and that's, that's, that is a custom that you have in all societies in the world. Even in Europe, you had the system of, of dowry. That when a girl got married, her parents would give her whatever they could afford so that, they could, so that she and her husband could start off a new life with, with something, you know, with, uh, with certain gifts and all that. Either it's money or it is uh, some other items that you can use in your household and so on and so forth. So in India, we had this system. Now what happened? <laughs> this is what happened. So I think it's an age-old custom in India of giving gifts to your daughter when she gets married so that she and her husband can start off a good life together. That is an age-old custom in India. Now what happened was this. During the past 1000 years in which we were occupied by foreigners, India became very poor. After the British occupation of India, they starved India to death, literally. They stole all the lands of the Indians, the Rayatwari system. Everybody was forced into subsistence farming and India became one of the poorest nations on the surface of the planet. Right? And that's when this horrible scarcity was prevailing across the country. And that's where this system became distorted. So when a girl would get married, in certain sections of certain societies, people would make demands that you need to send us this and you need to give us so-and-so gifts because of the scarcity. So I think these are all good traditions which had good intentions and good purposes and good intent. But because of the of the terrible millennium of humiliation that we have endured, all of our practices, all of our traditions got warped, got distorted, and certain terrible things crept into Indian society. So that's what my views are on the Hedge Pratha. It was initially a very good thing. I don't see anything wrong in parents giving gifts to the daughter when she gets married. It is a, It has to be a voluntary thing. The daughter can't demand things. The, the husband also can't demand things. The parents should give that willingly. I think all parents do that willingly. Give gifts, whatever they can afford to the daughter so that she can start off a good life. But it is when people start demanding things and all 
so i don't think most people do that you know it's a it's a very it's not a mainstream thing but all the distortions that crept into indian society they crept in during the past 1000 years during which the society was mangled beyond recognition we were being ruled by foreigners by foreigners who were intent on destroying our culture our traditions and everything and we barely survived and our societal practices ossified and became rigid and to a large extent in some cases they became distorted so that is what happened these are my views about this right lipton barua says was buddha aryan or mongolian uh, listen guys there is no such thing as aryan there's only indian ethnicity and indian ethnicity is a very diverse ethnicity but so who was the buddha his name was siddhartha gautam he was a member of a royal family uh the shakya clan so some people interpret that as being skithian because shaka and shakya sound similar i am not very sure of if that is the case maybe it is maybe it's not but it was the shakya clan which is a kshatriya clan i believe a warrior clan an aristocratic clan in northern india uh, and some part of it is right now in nepal i think he was born in lumbini which is currently inside nepal so people claim that he was <laughs> nepalese there was no nepal 300 years ago anyway but he was of the shakya he he belonged to the shakya clan which is a north indian clan i believe and uh, he uh, there are descriptions of how he looked i think he had curly kind of hair and uh, he was a reasonably well built and tall person that's what i can tell and from the depictions that you find of, of him uh, in statues in the gandhara region and other 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 parts of india especially close to the time when he was alive you can see that he he looked like a regular indian person so there is no evidence that he was mongolian of any kind he was very much an indian person so that is the answer right let me take one more question from from the comments uh debojit says uh big okay uh personal question how can you remember so many things <laughs> so many things so many topics facts information any tips or suggestions to on how to remember a lot of information so yeah it is true that i have remembered a lot of facts and things and i can talk about these things how do you do that let me tell you how i study things so of course you will have to re- if you want to remember lots of things you have to read a lot firstly but what is the approach to remembering things the approach is very counterintuitive see this is how i read something when i pick up a new book i tell myself very clearly i am going to remember only what i find interesting and i will forget everything else that's how i read things so i recently read a book about a historical figure i remember next to nothing about it it was a couple of months ago i remember next to nothing about it but i have a big picture of what the book was about and i can always refer back to it so i don't memorize information you know when you study for exams and all you are under this pressure that everything you read has to be memorized and that actually works in the opposite way because it makes you forget things 
But if you tell yourself that it's okay to forget whatever you don't find interesting, then you will be able to retain the interesting parts better. So this will not be a, a good help in memorizing things for Indian examinations. But in the long run in your life, if you want to retain information in large quantities, always give yourself the permission to forget everything. If you read something, tell yourself, I will remember only what I find interesting and I will reject everything else. That way you'll be able to read faster and you will be able to retain only what makes sense to you and what is of interest to you. So I read things like that. I read very fast. I, I'm, my reading speed is very fast, of course, because of years of practice. But I don't try to remember everything. I only look at what interests me, what catches my attention. And if something is, if I find something interesting, then naturally I will remember it. See, when you watch a movie, if it's a boring movie, you'll forget it. But if it's a really interesting movie, you will remember every detail of the movie. It's because you find it interesting, right? Similarly, when you read something, if you find it interesting, you will remember it without any effort. Otherwise, you will forget it. So it's fine to forget things. But read a lot and forget as much as you want. Remember only what you find interesting. That is the philosophy and that works for me. All right. <laughs> Let's take some more questions. Okay, what do we have? My suggestions for today's youth. Be positive, be confident, learn skills, and uh, yeah. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, you have to be confident in your abilities. You have to be positive. And you have to learn as many skills as you can because the future is all about skills. It's not about degrees. In the next 10 years, degrees will become irrelevant and obsolete. Artificial intelligence, automation will take care of all the redundant jobs in the world which don't require any real intelligence. And the, the people who are comfortable with technology, high technology, and who are good at learning new skills quickly, they are the ones who are going to rule the world. They are the ones who are going to make the new world. So that is what you have to keep in mind. Be confident, be positive and learn new skills. Learn, be comfortable with technology. So that's what I would say to the youth. Okay. I, <laughs> let me take some more questions. Almond tree forest near my house. No. <laughs> Are silicon-based life forms possible? I. It may be possible. If we can have carbon-based life forms, why can't we have silicon-based life forms? So we have this thing that only... See, when I was a kid, I used to read these science fiction books and books about aliens and astrobiology and all that. And the common theme in all these books written by great experts was that you need to find a planet where there can be liquid water in the so-called Goldilocks zone near a star. And there we may be, we may be, you may have a higher probability of finding alien life. So I used to find that as a kid really absurd because why can't you have non-water-based life? Why can't you have hydrocarbon, liquid hydrocarbon-based life? Why can't you have an organism whose blood is liquid mercury with certain other things? So that's what I used to imagine. And therefore, I would say that 
all kinds of different all kinds of biochemistry is possible not only water based or carbon based biochemistry so i would say that it's certainly possible that silicon based life may exist somewhere certainly it is it's certainly possible shivaji raja says please talk about nehru's blunders do you think khalistanis will be motivated after the bill withdrawal how oh, i don't they ask for land and pok po pakistan occupied punjab and all see listen i have spoken about nehru's blunders you have been telling me for a long time to make a video about that i will eventually make a video about mr nehru's great achievements in constructing this country he is of course the true architect of our nation the the state of the nation that it is i will do it he made so many blunders like i have spoken about multiple times in the past uh the he facilitated the, the chinese invasion of tibet he gave away aksai chin he lost the 1962 war to china he allowed pakistan to occupy a significant portion of kashmir which is now pok he did the lopsided indus waters treaty in which 80% of the water goes to pakistan he gave away manipur's kabo valley to burma as if it was his own ancestral property he gave away india's koko island to the burmese and so many things lots and lots and lots of blunders article 370 he inserted into india's constitution without any reason he refused the sultan of oman's offer to india to take the port of gwadar for free he refused to accept balochistan's request to become part of india he refused nepal's request to become part of india he he rejected that that request and so on and so forth he neglected india's army he turned it into a ragtag bunch of low morale soldiers and officers and so on and so forth so many things the, the great gentleman did the great 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 shri pandit ji chacha ji nehru so that's what i can say eventually one of these days when the time is right i will make a detailed video about mr nehru and his contributions to building the india that we live in today right will khalistanis be motivated after bill withdrawal listen that is a political issue will they be motivated i think it is actually a setback for them that the farm bills have been withdrawn because they were using it for politicizing and criminalizing the issue so what has been done has been done i don't think it will be good for them why don't they ask for land in pok because they are anti indians it is it has nothing to do with sikhism or anything it's an anti india uh movement that is being orchestrated from outside of india right so that's what i can say chandraban says can anybody establish a private archaeological survey of india in india in bharat I don't think it will be possible without government approval and the government will not give approvals to a private organization when they already have an ASI. I hope that in the future there will be reforms in archaeology. I have said that the ASI needs to be disbanded and a new organization of professional archaeologists need to be needs to be created. A private ASI it's not impossible if somebody has a good amount of money a few hundred crores maybe even a few crores then one one could hire a couple of student archaeologists or good archaeologists and start something if we can get approval from the government to dig in in public land or whatever it would take a lot of approvals lot of red tape that you would have got through and all but 
it is technically not impossible but it would take a lot of lot of doing because the government bureaucracy will not be happy about this but if you can get high level approval then it will be easier so technically it is certainly possible yeah yes kartik says that mr jawalal nehru rejected uh, nuclear weapons yes president kennedy of the us had offered india had offered to transfer nuclear weapons technology to india mr nehru rejected that he also rejected the multiple offers of a permanent seat for india on the un security council so there are so many of these blunders no they are not blunders the this is all something he did willingly because he had a certain idea of india in his mind he wanted to take india into a certain direction and that direction was the opposite of greatness so yeah that's what mr nehru did let me take oh, one more question from the comments so this is from sunil daya i think not only should prithviraj have killed gori but could have chased his army till his base and beyond to finish chances of any future invasion the pro- the problem was that our ancient rulers went beyond our boundaries on very few occasions only so what sunil is saying is that prithviraj should have chased gori and destroyed and killed him and maybe he should have gone all the way to afghanistan and uh, defeated and destroyed and ensured that there was no possibility of any future invasion of india from afghanistan i agree with that right so what happened is this in this battle right what happened is that this guy gori was severely wounded in the battle this is par- this is this is recorded by the by the uh, islamic historians themselves there was this book called tabaqati nasiri or something like that you know some 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 arabic kind of name in which it is recorded that this guy gori was severely wounded in the battle he was unable to continue on horseback and his army was completely routed it was defeated they ran they ran from the battlefield and what happened was that one of his soldiers had to assist him off the battlefield and help him escape because he was severely wounded he was not able to continue on horseback so people say that this was a disorganized chaos and that's why they were able to escape in the confusion this battle took place in india right not in afghanistan why was this wounded guy allowed to escape all the way to afghanistan why didn't the great prithviraj chauhan tell 10000 of his soldiers go pursue him even if they have faster horses or whatever go pursue him they are in india we know the terrain we know everything pursue him and do not come back without his head right go with extra horses do whatever is required hunt him down and kill him the thing is that this was not done prithviraj was not interested in chasing this guy down he has, he allowed him to escape it is I and mean, what do i call it <laughs> and if he escaped to afghanistan let's see escape to afghanistan prithviraj chauhan is supposed to be a great 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 king right why didn't prithviraj chauhan make it his life's work to go invade afghanistan destroy gori destroy ghazni destroy any possibility of a future invasion he was a great brave warrior right why didn't he do that these are the questions that that occur to me right 
and there are no answers see when the romans went to war with carthage they vowed to destroy carthage to the root because there were these multiple wars that they had to fight with the carthaginians the punic wars so at the end they finished off carthage by invading and occupying carthage killing all the carthaginians and destroying the city of carthage to its roots it, they destroyed the city brick by brick and they salted the soil so that nothing could ever grow there again in the future that's how you destroy your enemies mr chauhan sadly did not have that mentality right and and people are hating on me <laughs> for saying that he was not a great king that he should have done these things they say how dare you say such a thing to such a great and noble king he was so great he was so noble how can you call him uh, how can you say that he was not great enough see it's like this the greatness of a leader is not determined by how brave or how magnanimous he was the greatness of a leader of a king is determined by whether he succeeded in ensuring the long term security and prosperity of his people and his kingdom a king has only one duty it is to ensure the long term security and prosperity of his kingdom and his people that is the only yardstick by which a king's greatness is to be measured he doesn't have to be brave i don't care if a king is a coward i don't care if he is stupid as long as he is able to to ensure the long term security and prosperity of his people he is a great king even if he is personally a coward it doesn't matter right so that's how it is the iron rule of leadership is that a leader must succeed and a leader must succeed that's it that's how it is a leader should not tolerate failure among his subordinates and the people should never tolerate a leader who fails that's all i have to say about this right so i i will leave the judgment to you to my viewers did prithviraj chauhan the great king succeed in ensuring the long term security and prosperity of his people and of his kingdom yes or no that is the only yardstick by which we measure the greatness of a ruler that's all so i hope that answers these questions okay let's take one <laughs> final question i can see very funny questions which i will not take <laughs> okay what was the religion of china in ancient times see initially they were all uh, nature worshipers animists and all that but later you had taoism confucianism which came in which was essentially atheism it was all about uh, your duty towards your family and to the state so china has for around 2 2000 years been essentially officially ruled by atheists the chinese emperors were never buddhists but after the contacts with india the majority of the chinese population became buddhist and some chinese rulers were buddhist but the chinese emperors were always either taoists or confucians and their main philosophy was legalism legalism is what is still followed being followed by the chinese communist party so the chinese uh, system of governance hasn't really changed a lot in the past 2000 years even after the the communist takeover today under mr xi jinping the philosophy of governance is mainly it's mainly legalism it's something that you can look up you know what is legalism 
So it, it's something that first came in with the Huangdi Emperor, the Yellow Emperor of China, two two thousand three hundred years or so ago. So that's what it is. The people have typically been Buddhists in the past millennium and a half after China became influenced by India. But the emperors have always been atheists and legalists. They may privately have been something else, but the philosophy of governance has always been legalism. Either a mix, either hard legalism or a mix of legalism and Confucianism, which is again atheism. So that's how it has been. Shall I take one more question? Let's see if there is anything else I can take today. Abhi says, have you tried Kindle? If so, would you recommend it? Buying books has been costing me a lot of money and I'm looking for better alternatives. I think electronic books are a good option. I mean, buying physical books is very expensive. Of course, we know that. If you're a student, if you're a youngster, you really can't afford spending money on books. So try looking for information online. Certain books are uh, no longer copyrighted. They, you can be, they can be downloaded from uh, various sources online. And uh, electronic books, e-books on Kindle are reasonably cheap, much cheaper than the physical versions. So that is something you can look at. So yeah, you should look at different alternatives and find whatever works best for you. Some people are not very comfortable with e-books. They like the feel of actual physical books in their hand. Other people are perfectly comfortable with e-books. So whatever works best for you. But try and acquire as much knowledge as you can. That's what I can say. All right, ladies, gentlemen, boys, girls, my friends, thank you so much for all your wonderful questions. Very interesting session. And we shall continue as always next week. But it is we are at an end to, of today's session. So until next week, I bid you a very good week. And take care. Bye.